I just really believe that the Republican Party has been conned here. Really? Who's conning who, Senator? We'll discuss. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. No, I'm not. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ and 106.7 FM KSO, in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In, Ho- in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM in Columbus and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe as ever, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and blanketing the earth five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com, trying and trying to make sense of it all, though I can see it makes no sense at all. Glad you could join us. Good to have you here. Coming up, Harold Meyerson on how Bernie Sanders uh, supporters at least some of them are undermining Bernie Sanders and how they will need to support Hillary Clinton, says Harold, if she's uh, ultimately the Democratic Party's nominee, at least if those Bernie Sanders supporters wish to see the agenda of Bernie Sanders and his so-called political revolution move forward beyond the primary election. And uh, mind you, Harold Meyerson is no Hillary supporter in Sanders' clothing, uh, as as I've seen from many of the so-called progressives of late calling for Sanders to drop out, wringing their hands. Oh, it's terrible. It's only helping Donald Trump. Uh, I've seen a lot of people, even the progressive sites like Daily Coast and Mother Jones and TPM are now charging that Sanders staying in the race is going to damage uh, Clinton's chances, Democrats' chances against Trump in the fall. That's what I've been hearing, and that's what I've been reading over the past few days. But if you look at who is making those calls at those so-called progressive outlets, uh, most of them, many of them, are largely folks who have been Hillary Clinton supporters anyway for a long time. Folks like Marcus Melitsis and Josh Marshall and Kevin Drum, people I like, but they're supporters of Hillary. So to hear them say, oh, uh, the, what happened in Nevada a week or so ago at that convention is just harming Bernie Sanders. He's got to get out right now. Well, anyway, we'll see what Harold Meyerson has to say. He is not one of those uh, progressive Democrats who uh, supports Hillary. And uh, he actually is a Sanders supporter. So I'll be interested in getting his take on all of this. That is coming up. In the meantime, uh, some news from over the weekend, uh, beginning in Bangladesh, where tens of thousands of Bangladeshis have now returned on Monday 
to wind-battered villages and rain-soaked fields after a strong storm pummeled the coast and killed at least 26 people over the weekend. This is according to AP. Authorities there had ordered about 2 million people to be evacuated from coastal areas before Cyclone uh, Ronu, I believe that's how you say it. Desi Doyen, do you have any idea how that's supposed to be said? I don't speak Bangladeshi, but uh, oh, I, I believe see. that is properly pronounced. Okay, Ronu or Rowanu, I don't know. That hit the uh, that cyclone hit the port city of Chittagong on Saturday. But many had ignored the call to uh, to evacuate um, after deciding that the storm wasn't strong enough. It wasn't such a stre- uh, a threat. But uh, tens of thousands spent the weekend in cyclone shelters. Some 100,000 islanders returned on Monday to damaged and flooded homes, many who lost their stored food supply supplies and were, are now struggling to find enough to eat. Um, just uh, a terrible situation. Islanders uh, in uh, Moheshkali are now in constant fear that a 17-mile stretch of mud embankment badly damaged in the storm will collapse and allow seawater to swamp their homes and their fields. Millions are living along the vulnerable coast, and Bangladesh has worked to improve storm preparedness and to issue evacuation orders early to avoid high death tolls. This was much better than what happened in 2007 when Cyclone Sitter hit and about 3,000 were reported killed. Um, the country has now built concrete, uh, raised concrete buildings to serve as cyclone shelters across the vast region. Uh, but still, Bangladesh uh, will be increasingly vulnerable as climate change brings stronger storms and rising sea levels, according to experts, that will directly threaten low-lying, low-lying coastal regions that are home to 160 million people who are densely packed into an area the size of the U.S. state of Wisconsin. So uh, just some of the cost of uh, climate change that continues to ravage the planet and continues to be ignored, by and large, by the uh, corporate media media in this country. Furthermore, we talked last week as this uh, as this storm was coming in about landslides and heavy flooding uh, in Sri Lanka, uh, specifically mudslides that buried hundreds of families in uh, three different villages. Uh, now that flooding and those uh, mudslides have killed at least 73 people in Sri Lanka with scores still missing. Hundreds of thousands were forced to flee their homes from the torrential rains that, rains that have deluged the island nation since, uh, boy, uh, last weekend, uh, already uh, more than a week. Triggering those huge landslides and burying uh, the victims in up to 50 feet of mud. So they are still trying to work on that situation in Sri Lanka. Soldiers are still looking for bodies in thick mud deposits in a number of districts. Um, Just a terrible situation from the uh, uh, landslides in those three separate villages. 21 people have been confirmed dead and still 123 others are missing. Uh, Major General Sudantha Ranasinghe said another part of that same mountain came crashing down on Saturday this weekend, but there were no casualties because residents had already been evacuated after those first landslides. Um, They're trying to get aid out there, but there's just a huge number of people who are dislocated. About 22 of Sri Lanka's 25 districts have been affected by the rains, according to disaster officials. 
Almost a third of residents have been moved from the low-lying capital, which has a population of some 650,000 people. So the price of uh, climate change-related disasters continues to build around the globe, does he, Oh, it most certainly does. And, of course, we find that you have the biggest populations clustered around the coasts because that's where the food and the ports are. Mm -hmm. And, unfortunately, as scientists have been predicting for decades— Climate change impacts are going to hit the poorest regions of the world first and worst because they don't have the capacity to deal with the, the, the impacts like storm surge from the near-term impacts of climate change. When you have more intense storms, you have changes in the jet stream which cause these storms to park over locations and continuously drump, dump even more water than they ever had before, and you've got the storm surge, and you have poor construction and shoddy construction that's not prepared for it. Luckily, the Bangladesh uh, officials have, have been working toward creating better infrastructure and emergency supplies in order to help people survive and recover from these disasters. But these, this is not a problem that's going to get easier or better with time. No, it's only getting worse. And it's incredible that we spend so much time on politics in this country. We burn up so much of our media and don't even discuss these things. You know, so, so many people who are so... Uh, stressed out about Donald Trump, understandably. But, uh, you know, Donald Trump is a complete climate change denier. Yeah. And that issue does not come up. Even on a weekend where you've got these massive cyclones killing people all over the world, it's just not discussed here. It's just not part of our conversation. It's kind of amazing. So that's why I wanted to get that once again up front to make, you know, to, to help people understand what's actually going on on this planet. Because those of us in the U.S., if all you rely on is corporate media, you just have no idea. You have no idea that this uh, that this went on. It's all about politics now, electoral politics all the time. And that's understandable to some you know, extent, particularly while the primaries are still going on uh, and a presidential races ahead. But the fact that it's not even discussed, that these dots aren't even connected and these that these candidates are not even challenged on their positions is remarkable. And people don't know because the U.S. corporate media doesn't tell them right. that the Republican majority in Congress yep. is trying to block the United States from actually helping these countries prepare for climate impacts. There is a green, a green climate fund that Obama and the rest of the administration have committed U.S. dollars to to helping these countries out. And the Republicans are trying to block that. So elections do matter. It's not just the president that matters. It's also Congress. Elect Elections do matter. And uh, though we talk about the horse race on this show, I'm sure we spend much more time talking about the track conditions on which those horses are running. So ironically enough, over the weekend, we had an actual horse race. Uh, the Preakness uh, was over the weekend. And uh, here's how AP reported what happened in the two weeks since Nyquist won the Kentucky Derby. His owner, Doug O'Neill has been rattling off the virtues of his unbeaten star. That's Nyquist. The uh, the public bought into it, says Associated Press. Not only was Nyquist the uh, three to five uh, odds betting favorite, but he was all. But there was also a record crowd at the Preakness of uh, some 135,000 people showing up for the second leg of the Triple Crown, the Preakness, over the weekend. That, despite miserable weather. Nyquist's owner, O'Neill, insisted on Friday that the rains would not be a factor, but for the first time in nine career races, Nyquist had to run on a sloppy 
muddy track in the Preakness. And for the first time in his career, Nyquist lost. Four times previously, Nyquist had beat a horse by the name of Exaggerator, ironically enough. Uh, but on Sunday, Nyquist lost to Exaggerator. The previously undefeated favorite came in third place thanks to that sloppy, wet, muddy track uh, that they had to run on that served to undermine the odds-on undefeated favorite. I mention that because, as we have been pointing out on this show for years at this point, I don't care how good the candidate is, how undefeated his or her record may be. If the track conditions are muddy, if they're, if it's difficult to run, if it's difficult for people to vote, if it's difficult to count those people's votes, anything can happen. And if you've learned anything from this uh, democratic process so far over these past several months, we have very muddy track conditions when it comes to running our elections. Now, back in April, uh, when the uh, Wisconsin was having their uh, their presidential primary and for the first time in a major election, they were using uh, the the photo ID voting restrictions that Republicans had put in place out there. You may remember that uh, thousands of uh, students in particular had a very difficult time being able to cast their vote. They had to wait in line for hours. They had to do so twice. They had to wait in line for hours trying to get an ID in the first place. And then uh, just the process of checking those IDs uh, led to really, really long lines just to cast your vote. So uh, thousands of people, thousands of, of students and uh, minority voters who could not afford to wait in line for hours and hours were not able to cast their vote in Wisconsin. And the fight over that law continues. Uh, and that day, as a matter of fact, you may remember uh, this uh, congressman, now a U.S. congressman, uh, Grothman is his name, Glenn Grothman, uh, was asked about the uh, the photo ID restrictions uh, that were in place that day, April uh, April 5th, I, I believe it was, for the first time in Wisconsin in a major election. Here's what Republican congressman, former Wisconsin uh, state uh, uh, senator, now U.S. Congressman Glenn Grothman had to say about Wisconsin's photo ID restriction. You know that a lot of Republicans since 1984 in the presidential races have not been able to win in Wisconsin. Why would it be any different for Ted Cruz or a Donald Trump? Well, I think Hillary Clinton is about the weakest candidate the Democrats have ever put up. And now we have photo ID. And I think photo ID is going to make a little bit of a difference as well. Mm hmm. He thinks it's going to make a little bit of a difference as well. By how? By making it harder for Democrats, Democratic-leaning voters, to cast their vote. On that same day, Todd Alba, who had served as chief of staff to a Republican state senator in Wisconsin, uh, he had come out with a piece on Facebook saying that he was in a private caucus meeting when the Wisconsin Republicans first got together and first talked about putting that photo ID restriction in place and how gleeful how gleeful Republicans at that meeting, uh, how gleeful they were about the idea of a photo ID restriction keeping Democrats from being able to cast their vote. This was Todd Alba. He was the chief of state. I'm sorry, chief of staff to uh, to a Republican state senator who I believe was the uh, was the majority leader in the Wisconsin state Senate at the time. And, uh, you know, said that they were gleeful. And he said that's why he eventually left the Republican Party entirely. 
He went on to be interviewed by uh, Zachary Roth at MSNBC after uh, after he had put out his Facebook. And we read, I think at the time, we read his entire Facebook post on this. He, The guy now runs a coffee shop, and, and one of his employees was unable to vote in Wisconsin on April 5th because— of the uh, because of the new ID law, one of his uh, employees who had a driver's license, had a photo ID driver's license, but it was from a different state. He hadn't yet uh, got his uh, driver's license, I believe, as, as it was in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, he was therefore unable to vote despite being a properly registered voter and so forth. So Alba was talking about Republicans being gleeful about this. Uh, he quoted uh, to uh, MSNBC, he quoted another uh, Republican. He, he said Grothman was one of the folks who was in that room. The guy you just heard, he was one of the folks who was in that room that day when they were talking about uh, uh, putting this, uh, passing this law. He said another uh, senator had said, quote, what I'm interested in here is winning and we need to use the opportunity because if Democrats had the power to do it to us, they'd do it, said Alba. Uh, he said, I was in the room when this thing was conceived and birthed. He said, some bills work differently in reality than they were intended. This one worked exactly as intended, unquote. Now, Grothman, for his part, later on went on to say, well, I, I just don't think that Alba is remembering that correctly. Uh, that's that's just not true. It's it's false. I didn't say anything like that. I would have never said anything like this. Well, now Todd Alba uh, has said the same thing under oath in a case in Wisconsin. Uh, this is the uh, the former staffer to a Wisconsin state Republican senator uh, who went public last month with these accu accusations, uh, testified in a court case in Wisconsin under oath in, a, in federal court last week, and he identified uh, both Grothman and a number of the other legislators by name. Mary Lazich, Glenn, uh, Glenn Grothman, Lee Vukmer, Randy Hopper, as being, quote, giddy in a 2001 private caucus meeting about passing that bill, according to the Journal Sentinel. So uh, that's where we are. Uh, he said, uh, according to uh, uh, Alba's testimony last week, uh, Grothman said at that 2011 meeting, quote, what I'm concerned about here is winning. And that's what really matters. We better get this done quickly while we have the opportunity. That's what uh, Alba has now testified that Grothman said. Is there any doubt that that's the reason why these type of laws are being passed? No, there is none. Not only is there no doubt, there is no evidence uh, of the type of fraud, the only type of fraud that they could possibly be used to deter. That's polling place uh, uh, impersonation. And that just it doesn't happen. Why? Because it's the dumbest way to defraud an election. There are a lot of much smarter ways to do it other than, you know, standing in line for who knows how long, giving someone's name who may or may not have voted already, who knows, and then casting a single vote. And yet this is what the Republicans are doing because they realize if they can shave off just a few points, it may be enough to win any particular county and therefore state and therefore in a presidential election, the White House. And that's what the Republicans are hoping for up in Virginia, where Democrats have sued to stop a law that was passed by the uh, uh, majority, once again, majority Republican legislators and uh, and signed into law by the state's then Republican governor. 
that that Republican governor, by the way, is uh, is now uh, is Robert uh, Governor Robert Bob McDonnell. Uh, he is facing he was found guilty of corruption charges and he's now challenging uh, that finding to the Supreme Court. But late last week, a federal judge upheld Virginia's photo ID requirement, dealing a blow to a, a national push by Democrats to remove those laws that they say, no, they don't say, they know, disenfranchise minority and poor voters. Republicans applauded the decision by the federal court, calling it a victory for the integrity of Virginia's elections, while Democrats called it a disappointment and said they will probably appeal. Uh, That's going on in Virginia, which is, again, another very important swing state uh, for Democrats and Republicans alike this November. If nothing changes now, it's going to be a lot harder for voters to vote in Virginia, particularly Democratic-leaning voters in the state of Virginia. The uh, Republican-controlled state legislature had approved that requirement back in 2013. It was signed into law by Virginia's um, uh, uh, Democratic uh, uh, Governor uh, Terry McAuliffe, his predecessor, Bob McDonald. They now have a Democratic governor, Terry McAuliffe, But this law is already passed. It cannot be undone, at least until there's a Democratic legislature. Yes, elections matter. As Desi said, as I've said, uh, even those uh, off-year elections. And so this is just one of the reasons that I warned Democrats who are giddy about Donald Trump that there is likely to be a battle royale for access to the polls across the country this year. Our, our, our electoral system is remarkably brittle. It can be easily gamed both before and after votes are cast and then when they're counted. So, you know, and anyone who recalls our coverage on this program of the incredibly close Virginia attorney general's election back in 2013, it was a matter of a few hun- couple hundred votes. Anyone who remembers that can testify to, uh, you know, to, to, to how close these elections can be, how close they can be in states like Virginia. Uh, which is a very, very important state for Democrats to win this fall. Elections have consequences, including those off-year elections in Virginia and elsewhere, and Democrats are likely to pay the price for that off-year election. By the way, speaking of Virginia, Governor Terry McAuliffe, we may have this uh, more on this in the future. He's now the Democratic governor. Uh, CNN is now reporting uh, just before air that McAuliffe, The Democratic governor is now the subject of an ongoing investigation by the FBI and prosecutors from the Justice Department's Public Integrity Unit. Uh, This, uh, they say, is concerning um, uh, among the uh, uh, things they're looking at campaign finance donations, one of which includes one hundred and twenty thousand dollars from a Chinese businessman. Uh, although uh, he is now a permanent, this uh, Chinese businessman is now supposedly a permanent uh, U.S. person, a a permanent U.S. resident, which makes him a U.S. person who, under election laws, are eligible to donate to McAuliffe's uh, campaign. So we will see what goes on there with uh, uh, McAuliffe. He is a, a big supporter of Hillary Clinton's. Uh, he was a former head of the uh, of the DNC. Um, so we will see what happens in the meantime. 
more and more Republicans are, in fact, coming around to Donald Trump. Remember uh, months ago when uh, uh, Lindsey Graham, when he was running for the uh, for the Republican nomination, uh, remember when he was talking about uh, what would happen if the only choices at that point were uh, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz? If you nominate Trump and Cruz, I think you get the same outcome. You know, whether it's death by being shot or poisoning, does it really matter? Yeah. Well, that was uh, Lindsey Graham, and uh, he has been saying over and over again how Donald Trump was not a real conservative. He said it recently again on CNN. I just don't believe Donald Trump is a reliable conservative Republican, and I don't think he has the temperament of judgment to be commander-in-chief. I just can't go there with Donald. Uh, And I just really believe that the Republican Party has been kind here, and this guy is not a reliable conservative Republican. Oh, that's what he said over and over again. Lindsey Graham, he just, uh, he's con. Donald Trump is a con man. He's not a real conservative. It's uh, the comparison between being shot or poisoned. He said that over and over. Here he is again on CNN. I would have supported Rand Paul and Ted Cruz. I just can't go where Donald Trump takes the party and the country. I'm sorry I can't. I respect those who, who will go. Go there, but I can't go where Mr. Trump takes us. Well, funny thing about that, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, one of his fiercest critics, is now calling on Republicans to support the presumptive nominee. Imagine that. Who could have told you that was going to happen? Uh, CNN also is reporting that Graham urged GOP donors at a private fundraiser over the weekend in Florida to unite behind Donald Trump's campaign and stress the importance of keeping likely Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton from the White House. Report CNN, the fundraiser was hosted by a former U.S. ambassador, a former Republican National Committee finance chairman who also chaired Senator John McCain's 2008 presidential bid. Teresa Daly, a prominent Florida Republican fundraiser who attended the private event, told CNN on Sunday, quote, he did say that we need to get behind him. Yes, even Lindsey Graham is saying they need to get behind Donald Trump. That is what the Republicans are going to do. So uh, all of that is happening, as I warned you it would, at the same time that the polls continue to mount Uh, showing some uh, a a very tough road here for Hillary Clinton. NBC News has a new uh, poll out. NBC News Wall Street Journal poll over the weekend find that uh, Clinton's lead over Trump nationally has now uh, shrunk to just three points. Three points, according to NBC. Clinton is uh, 46 to Trump's 43. She's up four points since the last poll. He is, uh, I'm sorry, she's down four points since the last poll. Donald Trump is up four points since the last poll. Uh, her, in, according to NBC Wall Street Journal, uh, her unfavorable ratings, uh, she's way underwater here, 21 points underwater. The only thing that's encouraging to her from that is that Donald Trump is even farther underwater in his favorable unfavorables by negative 29 points. And again, these aren't cherry picked polls. This is now one after another. ABC News, Washington Post poll over the weekend. Some good news for Hillary Clinton. She's up six points. Eh, It's not a lot, but she's up six points among all adults nationally. But among registered voters, Donald Trump is now beating Hillary Clinton by two points, according to the Washington Post ABC News poll. Uh, beating her 46 to 44. That is up five points for Donald Trump since March, and Hillary Clinton has slipped six points since March. Those are national. 
State polls, what about those? Because it's really only state polls that matter. Well, in Florida, according to the CBS battleground poll in Florida, Hillary Clinton is now beating Donald Trump by a single point, 43 to 42 in the important swing state of Florida. And in Ohio, she's doing a little bit better. She's up uh, by five points there, 44 to 39. But this is not good news, I should say, for Hillary Clinton. Uh, And uh, it may be something that Democrats want to keep in mind as uh, they get ready for another set of uh, primary elections coming up in two weeks out here in California and out in New Jersey, North Dakota, South Dakota, New Mexico and Montana and a few other places, Washington, D.C., And yet you've got a lot of uh, Democrats who are now freaking out that this thing is going on so long, that this race continues, that, oh, they say it's hurting uh, Hillary Clinton. That's why she's doing poorly in the polls. She's uh, because, you know, this fight between her and Bernie Sanders. Well, evidence shows that's not the case either. This from the same NBC News poll that I just uh, read to you earlier, despite evidence that the still ongoing Democratic primary has taken a toll on Hillary Clinton's poll numbers, Democrats, by a two to one margin, believe that the Hillary Clinton versus Bernie Sanders contest, uh, if that lasts through June, they say it is helpful to the party according to this uh, latest NBC News Wall Street Journal poll. Forty percent of Democratic primary voters say that the Democratic race continuing through the final primaries in June is good for the party. That versus 22 percent who think it's bad. Forty percent think it's good for the Democratic Party. Twenty two percent think it's bad for the Democratic Party. Thirty six percent think it makes no difference either way. That is different from back in 2008. When uh, uh, around the same time, uh, the NBC News Wall Wall Street Journal poll showed that uh, just 21 percent believed that the long fight between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton was good for the party. Twenty one percent thought it was good compared with 37 percent who thought it was bad at the time. Those numbers are now flipped in this contest between Sanders and Clinton. Uh, but not everyone agrees. And we will take a quick break and come back and talk with Harold Meyerson about exactly that and about, you know, what damage, if any, Bernie Sanders supporters may be doing to the Democrats chances this uh, in this uh, in this primary and this November against Donald Trump. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. Are Bernie bros undermining Democrats chances? We'll talk about that next with Harold Meyerson. I'm Brad. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by Bradblog.com slash donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. By taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks. 
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, following the chaotic state Democratic convention in Nevada just over a week ago, where Sanders supporters vociferously protested parliamentary procedures by the state party chair, which left many of them uh, unable to challenge or introduce rules amendments or uh, or contest a disputed voice vote. Many in the corporate media misreported what happened at the convention as violence by Sanders supporters. That included, uh, they said, the throwing of chairs at the stage, etc. While no chairs were actually sh- shown to have been thrown at the stage or anywhere else, Uh, And there was no evidence of violence at the convention. The proceedings did get loud and raucous. And in the days following it, some uh, uh, some who were claiming to be Sanders supporters outrageously left threatening voicemail and text messages for the state party chair in Nevada. The one who had gaveled the convention in Las Vegas to a premature close amidst those chaotic protests. But even though the chair throwing nonsense has been pretty thoroughly debunked by NPR and others since then, the damage was done, uh, including by outlets like NPR themselves who had inaccurately reported on it originally. Folks like the Green Party's presidential candidate Jill Stein described on this program last week that the incident has been made into what she called the Dean Scream of 2016, as it's been used by the corporate media to unfairly damage the Sanders campaign, just as upstart Howard Dean's Democratic presidential campaign was undermined by the corporate media using a video of of, uh, Dean giving a rallying cry to supporters as a way to undermine the serious of his campaign back in 2004. But even some longtime Sanders supporters, real ones, not just Democrats who call themselves progressive but who always supported Hillary Clinton anyway, real ones, real Sanders supporters, some of them are now charging that the behavior of some of Sanders' loudest proponents may now be undermining the Vermont senator's surprisingly successful run for the Democratic Party nomination and uh, further that a failure by those Sanders proponents to support Hillary Clinton this November, if she finally secures the nomination, will actually harm Bernie Sanders, uh, his agenda and his call for a political revolution in the future. One of those longtime Sanders supporters concerned about the effect of some of Sanders' most ardent proponents is Harold Meyerson, who explained his Uh, concerns in his column at The Prospect last week headlined How the Bros Are Undermining Bernie. Until late last year, Harold Meyerson was a longtime weekly columnist for The Washington Post, and for many years prior to that, he served as executive editor for the L.A. Weekly out here. He is now the executive editor of the American Prospect magazine and contributes to the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. I believe this is his first time on the broadcast. Harold Meyerson, sir, welcome to the broadcast. Uh, great to be here, Brad. Delighted to have you, sir. All right. Over the last several days, uh, really weeks on this program, we've been doing our best to counter the corporate mainstream narrative, which has essentially declared Hillary Clinton to be the nominee before the process is even over. For example, out here in California, I would like to be able to cast my vote, all of our votes, with some, you know, 475 pledged delegates up for grabs. Um, And not to mention New Jersey, North Dakota, South Dakota, etc. Before being told that it's over by uh, the media, it would be nice for those of us to be able to vote. 
Uh, but with all of that in mind, you offered at least two historical cases that I think are really important to support your argument that many of the Bernie or Bust supporters out there might want to keep in mind. Before you explain them, let's make let's check your Bernie uh, bona fides here. Uh, you're not a Hillary bot. You're not a Hillary bro, right? You're a, a lifelong Democratic right. Socialist. I am indeed. And uh, and you describe it, uh, there was a time that you and Bernie were really the only ones in D.C. willing to admit you were lifelong Democratic Socialists. Yeah, I think I wrote a column about in the Post about seven or eight years ago, uh, I'm not quite sure when, in which I said the only two Democratic Socialists uh, I, I, you know, I, I know in Washington are Senator Bernie Sanders and the guy I see in the mirror every morning when I shave. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, I've, I've been around this... Uh, this business, such as it is, for, uh, for, for a very long time. And I'm tremendously excited by the Sanders campaign. I mean, I think he has, uh, I, I've written in, in the prospect in the last print issue, mm-hmm. that it, it isn't so much that he invented a left as that he revealed it, uh, that there was this uh, absolute, uh, uh, legitimate, uh, real frustration and discontent with both the economic system and the political system that uh, uh, that bolsters the economic system and that we're seeing it in all kinds of ways this year in 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 good ways and uh, and to a certain degree in bad ways with uh, to the extent that it uh has fed some of the stuff we see in the Donald Trump campaign uh and that we see in right-wing populist parties in Europe but that uh, you know Sanders has done a tremendous service and and you know what what's really crucial is that the forces that he has uh, put in action uh, continue to operate and can continue to uh, push the limits of the possible in uh, in the United States uh, once his campaign is over, whether that is in July or in November. But uh, now, Harold Meyerson, you are turning on your comrade. You make the case, uh, at least in your column at the Prospect last week, that Sanders supporters uh, are now actually undermining, at least some of them, at least many of them, as you argue, are now undermining Sanders and his campaign. How so? Well, some of them. I didn't say many of them. Okay, uh, fair no, enough. No, I, I, just, I just think that, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you that there, there was massive misreporting of what went on in Nevada. Mm-hmm. But just, you know, the, uh, the, the, the tweets and the texts and the trolling that, that goes on among some of his uh, supporters, a, a really distinct minority, I should add, um, it doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think in focusing to a degree on, on the Democratic Party and its rules, which they need to do because they need to be changed, mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we need to remember the, the greater uh, goal and the greater narrative of really changing economic and political power in this country, and uh, that that's the main, uh, the main goal here. And while there are uh, legitimate distinctions between the Sanders and the Clinton camp, we should also remember that there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of lefties in the Clinton camp, too. Uh, I noticed today uh, each, each campaign... Uh, made their appointments uh, today, Monday, to mm-hmm. the uh, Democratic Party's uh, the convention's platform uh, a drafting committee. Right. Uh, and among the non-Sanders appointees are, are people like Barbara Lee, who's probably you know the, the leftmost member of the House, mm-hmm. uh, member of Congress from uh, from Oakland, with a record at least as left as Bernie's. Um, you know, I mean, so uh, uh, th- this needs to be a nuanced critique, and sometimes we're our guys are lacking in uh, in nuance. You know, 
it's reason it, it's very frequent in politics yes. that uh, people on your side uh, ain't as nuanced as you would have them. But you know, I think I think you, they need to be reminded now and then of. Uh, uh, keeping their eyes on the prize, as and, it were. And let's uh, let's do some of that. Uh, let's remind folks of that, because I think that a lot of the institutional memory out here seems to be lost or ignored with the social media and the thinning out of the corporate mainstream media. So in your prospect column, uh, you write that we have seen this all before. You draw a parallel to Sanders uh, supporters now and what happened in the 1968 campaign. So uh, it, when you had the party tearing itself apart because of opposition, to the Vietnam War. Talk to me and other youngsters like myself, Harold Meyerson, uh, who may not remember <laughs> what happened. Talk to me about the fissures in the Democratic Party at the time and the parallels used in 68 and the parallels you now see to 2016. Yeah, well, I was, I was, I was a youngster in 1968. Literally, I just graduated uh, L.A. High School, and L.A. High Schools in those days had media graduation. Mm-hmm. So I graduated in January of 68, right before the Tet Offensive kind of exposed, and not that we weren't against the war to begin with, but exposed the uh, complete failure of uh, the American effort in Vietnam to do anything but kill Vietnamese and Americans. Uh, and that um, there was an anti-war candidacy initially, uh, Senator Eugene McCarthy, and then joined by Senator Robert Kennedy, uh, all of which uh, came to uh, blows, as it were, at the Democratic Convention in 1968 uh, in, in Chicago, uh, where again I was, uh, and uh, any you know the, the new revelations about how rotten the Chicago Police Department are mm-hmm. are kind of you know we saw this already many decades ago. It's simply that nothing has changed in any event. Uh, but but what happened thereafter was that the the people of my generation and a little older who got active in the McCarthy and Kennedy and four years later the George McGovern campaign really stuck around and changed the Democratic Party, and they made it for, for some decades thereafter, both uh, generally more progressive and uh, certainly uh, more anti-interventionist and not crazy Cold War party that it had been uh, you know, from uh, the end of World War II until uh, the breakdown of the Vietnam War. Um, so that was you know, that, that was a, a real achievement, but you know it takes staying power. Uh, you don't you don't change a a political party uh, by uh, coming in and then going out. I mean, these people ran essentially anti-war candidates for a number of uh, you know for any number of uh, political uh, positions uh, in the years thereafter, and uh, just as you would hope, uh, I would hope that the Sanders campaign generates a lot of uh, uh, people who are. Uh, uh, you know, want a more democratic and equitable economy and society uh, and uh, stick around after the Sanders campaign is over this year. But you also made the case that it was that those uh, divisions within the Democratic Party that uh, led to Richard Nixon winning that year and, uh, you know, the war continuing on for years thereafter. Uh, you write that if the Sanders revolution is ever to come to fruition, the Bernie brigades will have to vote for and work for Hillary Clinton's election in the fall. Why is that important when so many uh, Sanders supporters find uh, find Hillary Clinton's uh, policies to be abhorrent? Well, I mean, you have uh, in, in, in two ways. First of all, a Clinton uh, administration is going to be pressured from the left by Bernie, by Elizabeth Warren, uh, by uh, all of the people who mm-hmm. were active in the Sanders campaign, by the unions. But, you know, I mean, 
the way to pressure it is to elect representatives, which God knows is certainly capable of doing, uh, uh, who represent, uh, you know, Sanders politics uh, in subsequent uh, primaries. But, you know, you're going to need support from some of the Hillary backers uh, to do that. And, you know, one of the most interesting things, if you look at the exit polling uh, and, and other polling this year, is that uh, a substantial, and I've seen this, you know, in campaign event after campaign event, a substantial number of Hillary supporters actually back a lot of Bernie's proposals, and they're with Hillary uh, out of, you know, whatever strategic or tactical uh, considerations uh, they have made. Uh, So it's a mistake. Uh, I mean, first of all, I think it's just empirically wrong to label a lot of those people as your political opponents. And secondly, uh, a lot of those people can be mobilized uh, on behalf of, uh, you know, Sanders-esque candidates uh, for congressional, Senate, and, and, and other seats. So you wouldn't want to estrange them. And you get more, you get more power uh, lobbying uh, uh, Hillary uh, to move left uh, than you, you know, do. Uh, ultimately, you have to join forces with the Clinton people, too, if Trump is president opposing uh, a power dive into uh, racist neo-fascism or fascist neo-racism or whatever it is <laughs> that uh, Donald mm-hmm. Trump would uh, would represent uh, if, if he's elected. You also note another historical parallel in your article uh, to this year's election, and you, which you warn about, that goes back to German communists, Stalin and the Nazis in 19... 19- in the 1930s, uh, explain that compelling parallel because it, it actually uh, is a really interesting parallel for those who are thinking yeah, uh, it would be yeah, better to is, have Trump. Right. This is this is kind of the, uh, uh, you know, if you're looking at uh, strategic errors of the communist movement, I think this probably ranks right up there. Um, there was this period in the late 20s and early 30s as Stalin consolidated his power in the Soviet Union, where uh, they tended to label as their main enemies the party closest to them, because they wanted to eliminate the rivalry. So in this case, in Germany, it was the German Social Democrats who had uh, been the traditional left party, and then the communists emerged after after 1919. Uh, and uh, they called them social fascists, which is a kind of nonsensical term, but you know, and, and mainly campaigned against them rather than Hitler uh, in the 1932 elections, which, uh, uh, in which the Nazis uh, won enough votes to, uh, to form a government. Uh, this was you know, a mistake that the communists later realized right. uh, they should not have made. And uh, uh, I think labeling the Hillary people as uh, you know, the main enemy uh, is a kind of uh, grim... I hear a little echo in there of labor labeling the social democrats as social fascists. Uh, you can, you know, you can be outside a political tendency or close to it, but not, you know, in but not not of it, mm-hmm. uh, uh, without labeling it as uh, the main problem. And I think, you know, for all of the limitations of Hillary Clinton, she is miles away from Donald Trump, and that should be obvious. Uh, you know, just looking at uh, his statements on on race and immigration and et cetera and et cetera. Harold Marston, before I let you go, uh, one question. You know, last week I reported on the uh, 2008 Gallup poll that found 28 percent of Hillary Clinton supporters back in 2008 had planned to vote for John McCain if Obama won the nomination that year. That's almost the exact same number we're seeing now claiming that they're going to not vote for Hillary or they're going to vote for Trump. 
Uh, you know, isn't all the worry that so many, you know, we're hearing a lot of uh, hand-wringing coming from, frankly, longtime Hillary supporters in the in the media, uh, you know, worried that, oh, this this continuing fight only helps Donald Trump. I, you know, it, it seems like some of these folks needed a fainting couch after the uh, lively uh, protest in Nevada yeah. at the convention. Isn't this just democracy? Isn't this the way it works? Doesn't this all sort itself out uh, after the voting is finally done? Well, not automatically. Uh, I mean, I think Hillary will have to make some real concessions on platform, and I mm-hmm. think that'll be great. Um, uh, if only, you know, uh, to, uh, uh, you know, push her to the left on the economy. So, you know, she, ha- she, she has to move some. Mm-hmm. Uh, both candidates have to be open to uh, some kind of uh, resolution that uh, recognizes but the uh, idea the that the movement of the Democratic Party, but you know, I, I mean, I agree with you that I think, you know, I, I think the number of uh, Sanders supporters who ultimately will not uh, uh, vote for uh, for Hillary when when she comes if if she's a nominee and it comes down to her versus Trump, I think it's a lot smaller than we're seeing now. I think uh, uh, you know, confronting the reality of a Trump presidency will uh, you know concentrate the mind. Well, we'll see. I, I think it will. Uh, we'll see. And, you know, I just I, I like to see a, a lively uh, democracy. That's kind of what this seems to me to be, even when, you know, when there are uh, you know many people and, and many things they do that I don't agree with. I'm thinking, you know, hey, that's democracy. Let the people vote. Let the process work its way through. Uh, in any event, check out Harold Meyerson's uh, uh, column and, and his work, as always, at Prospect.org. The uh, column we refer to is How the Bros Are Undermining Bernie. Harold Meyerson, great to talk to you, my friend. I uh, really appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast. It's a pleasure, Brad. Take care. All right. You too. Since Harold mentioned that uh, that platform committee that has now been, this is uh, also broke just before air, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders has been given an unusual say over the drafting of the Democratic Party platform this year, even if, as expected, he loses the primary contest to Hillary Clinton. That's Washington Post saying, as expected, not me. The two Democratic candidates have agreed with Democratic Party officials to a new apportionment of the 15-member committee that writes the platform. Clinton has picked six members and Sanders has named five. These all used to be named by the uh, DNC chair, uh, but now they're allowing them to split it up. So, indeed, uh, Sanders uh, has picked James Zogby, a pro-Palestinian activist, as The Washington Post put it. They, f- they were fixated on, on Zogby uh, being, being chosen here. Uh, also, uh, Cornell West liberal author and racial justice activist. Uh, He's been a Sanders surrogate. He's been named for the platform committee. Sanders also named Congressman Keith Ellison of Minnesota, a big backer of his, and environmental activist Bill McKibben. Did you know that he was going to be on this platform? Yes, I did. That's kind of cool. And there's also one more who's been nominated by the Sanders campaign, Mm -hmm. a Native American activist. Uh, That's right. Uh, Deborah Parker uh, has been named. Uh, Harold Meyerson had mentioned uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee. She is the only, the only, the single person, only woman or man in Congress to have voted against the 2001 authorization to go to war in Afghanistan. Uh, So for her to be on this committee, that's important as well. So all of these people uh, are there because Bernie is in this race. 
And uh, that's something I would suggest uh, Democrats think about when they, uh, you know, if they're going to say Bernie or bust and, uh, you know, vote for Donald Trump or for a third party or stay home. Uh, if you want to be in the game, if you want to have, uh, you know, folks like Cornell West and Barbara Lee and uh, uh, Bill McKibben affecting uh, policy in the uh, during a Clinton administration, if that's what comes about. Well, I would think twice about that. Uh, that lesser of two evil arguments that we hear so much about uh, from uh, from Sanders supporters who are considering not voting at all this November. Anyway, a- another quick thought about that uh, after this break. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Uh, Bernie Sanders himself made the argument uh, that uh, it would be a contest between uh, the lesser of two evils this fall uh, when he was uh, speaking, if Hillary Clinton wins the nomination, when he was speaking over the weekend with George Stephanopoulos on ABC News this week. He says he wasn't making that argument, but that a lot of voters felt that way. We need a campaign, an election coming up which does not have two candidates who are really very, very strongly disliked. I don't want to see the American people voting for the lesser of two evils. I want the American people to be voting for a vision of economic justice, of social justice, of environmental justice, of racial justice. That is the campaign we are running, and that's why we are getting the support we are. Is that how you would describe Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump, the lesser of two evils? Well, if you look... No, I wouldn't describe it, but that's what the American people are saying. If you look at the favorability ratings of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, both of them have very, very high unfavorables. You're not going to disagree There's with no me on that, There's no question about that, absolutely. Well, that was Bernie Sanders over the weekend uh, talking about uh, the choice as potentially being a, a choice between the lesser of two evils. That's a, same, that's a point that Jill Stein, the Green Party presidential candidate in 2016, she was the nominee for the Greens in, uh, in 2012. That's a point that she made as well on this program last week during my interview with her. In response to that, uh, Eric B. writes to uh, writes to me at bradcast at bradblog.com to say, Oi, I spent my formative years in post-war Germany. From my German friends, I learned much about what leads to disaster. Then he goes on to list them. One, the lesser of two evils is, in all caps, less evil. <laughs> okay. Simple math. Uh, Good point. Two, total revolution leads to total chaos. Total chaos leads to fascism. Now, I don't think that Bernie Sanders is calling for total revolution. I think he's calling very carefully for a political revolution. Uh, But in any event, uh, three, when the powers that be hold most of the cards, a direct confrontation is pointless. Four, if power is threatened, it will react with overwhelming brutality. Five, incrementalism is more successful in the long run as it helps preserve culture 
economic stability, and lives. Six, history is not written by the winners. It is written by the survivors. Ooh, wow. He goes on to write, I do not want a revolution. There has never been a revolution that has not devastated real people's lives. One should remember that every signer of the Declaration of Independence died in poverty. I'm not sure that's true, by the way. Uh, didn't Thomas Jefferson uh, survive uh, pretty well in, at uh, Monticello? In any event, uh, he says, and the American Revolution is supposed to be the template for a good revolution. I have re- reservations about its goodness. Again, that was an actual violent revolution. Bernie Sanders is calling for a political revolution, which is very different. In any event, uh, that's the uh, the note uh, signed by Eric B. in Long Beach, California, who adds uh, that he is Bernie in the primary, Hillary in the general, though I may have to eat dry toast to prevent vomiting. Oh. That's what that's what he says. But well written. Yes. My goodness. Well written. Thanks for that letter, Eric B. You can send me email anytime yourself if you like. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com. You can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Bradblog. Use hashtag Bradcast. My thanks today to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to the prospects, Harold Meyerson, and, of course, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, go listen to that interview with Jill Stein. It was was quite interesting. You can find it at bradblog.com. And, uh, and over at iTunes. You can download all our shows for free at any of those places, anytime. All right. Until- and please leave us a nice recommendation because it really, really does help other Helps people, other people find, find us. Helps other people find us, yeah. That's, that's how the word gets out. Give us a nice review over at iTunes. Uh, and while you're there, give the Green News Report a good, news, a good review, too. Please. Desi needs it. <laughs> all right. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.